I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. All right, guys, welcome back. Matt Dixon here, and this is another episode of the Purple Patch Podcast. And I want to start today reminding you guys of the mission of Purple Patch, which is to empower and educate all human beings to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach human potential. And today, we go to the heart of this mission. We're going to be exploring your institutions of performance, work, life, sport, and health. Our special guest today, Carmel Galvin. She is the CHRO of Glassdoor, a company that many of you guys might have heard of. And we're going to be talking a lot about Glassdoor and their approach to performance, employees, and employers as we go through today. Our discussion is going to be built into two sections. Part one, diving into the undeniable connection between performance in the workplace and life. Understanding who you are outside of work is who you are going to be inside work. And so if you're interested in concepts such as the optimized health, how company culture can be set up to enable high performance and very loyal employees, or shifting a mindset into a fully integrated life, you'll want to listen. But in part two, we talked to Carmel about her own personal journey to performance and how it's helped to thrive as a business executive, but also a mum. Her story is, I think, both inspirational, full of lessons of examples of overcoming immense fear and also navigating massive obstacles and getting up quite literally when you get knocked down. So in Carmel's story, we talk about her overcoming the immense fear of water that she had, a very genuine fear, a major bike crash. And yet through it all, Carmel has emerged to become what I think is the epitome of high performance in time-starved life. She's not a competitive athlete. In fact, she barely races. You're not going to want to miss this one, folks. But before we get going on that discussion, why don't we dive into that word thing? We like the way he thinks, serious with the wake. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek. It's the Dictionary Word of the Week. And this week, the word of the week is shackles. Shackles? Yep, we're a few episodes in, so it's time to bring out the word shackles. And you might be asking yourself... Is he just about to explore his perverted side of coaching? No, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait for that a little bit longer. But if you're an endurance athlete or a fitness enthusiast, my guess is that a lot of your training is recorded on all of these magic devices out there. There are so many to choose from. GPS watches, heart rate monitors, power meters, smart trainers and treadmills, heart rate variability. We haven't even talked about sleep monitors. The list goes on and on. We have an undeniable amount of data and we can track relating to all of our workouts and performance. It's a massive pile of information and much or most of it can be useful. All of it is pitched to help drive that magic word of specificity and accuracy in your training. But unfortunately, too many athletes and coaches get led by the information. They become, and here comes the word, shackled by the gadgets and information, and they misuse that information that they received. Most importantly, in my mind, they lose the sense of pacing. They lose what I would call the inner animal, the internal pacing, self-awareness, and management of that word feel. Subconsciously, they try and end up engineering their way through a challenge. But the news is, guys, we're not building a bridge here. You cannot engineer performance. The common approach for so many athletes is led by some form of test, whether it be in a lab, whether it be a benchmark assessment or a field test, there are many of them. But from that test, many endurance athletes create these magic things called zones and they become the specificity. And then through the next four, six, 10, 12 weeks, athletes end up ignoring all signals, or a sense of fatigue, whether it's from life, whether it's from training, whether it might be mood. 
they have their specificity. They ride, they run, and they row right in the magic zone that, by the way, was created one day on a single day, 10 weeks ago, and it may or may not have been executed well or poorly. On a great day, they hold back to stay in that zone. Deadly fatigued? So what? I've got to hit my magic zone that was created on that single session 10 weeks prior. How's that for specificity, folks? Set it and forget it. Take all the thinking out, remove the awareness, and then loyally track and monitor your data in your software. It's limiting and it mutes the true sense of the athlete. Now, make no mistake, data is good. It provides a fantastic framework. It is good to monitor on the fly. It's great to track and review following to really give a genuine and objective lens on what actually happened. And after all, what isn't tracked cannot be reviewed and learnt from. But don't forget your primary driver of success. Ultimately, in my mind, understanding the intent and purpose of what you're trying to do, execute into that tent, and then manage or let it rip, depending on what the day gives you, is the way to go. You must develop self-awareness. You must emerge with management tools that will carry you far. The data should come along for a ride. It's a great companion, but don't be shackled by it. And hence, the word of the week is shackled. Now, let's get on with the meat and potatoes. All right, guys, well, here we are. It is time for the meat and potatoes. And today I'm joined by Carmel Galvin. Carmel Thank you very much for being on the show. Hello, Matthew. A little bit about you. We know each other very well, but I want to give the folks at home a little bit of insight into what we're going to be talking about today. So you, unlike me, are from Ireland, Dublin to be exact. You graduated from Trinity College with a degree in politics and then went on to do your master's at USD Smurfett School of Business there. And then, just like me, came across the United States a couple of years behind me, 1994, and since then, I've gone on to develop, well, quite a career in human resources over the last 25 years at various tech and phytech and consulting organizations. But currently, something we're going to talk a lot about today, I have a feeling, you're the CHRO at Glassdoor, a very interesting organization. Outside of that, in my mind, you're an elite athlete, but we're going to get into your athletics a little bit later on. And perhaps the most challenging part, at least what you told me, married with three teenage daughters, 16, 14 of 12. So you are managing not only Zoe and Katie and Ali, but also Peter, your husband, who I know very well. And uh, and I can imagine how that might be challenging. You're the epitome of the time-starved athlete. And so we're going to go today in two phases. The first thing is we're going to talk a little bit about Glassdoor through the lens of performance and I think some of the really interesting parallels that we have and then I think transition on to you and your story as it relates to athletic performance you've got a a wonderful story of inspiration overcoming struggles uh, challenges and uh, and really sort of a successful integration of fitness into a time-starved life um, but let's uh, let's get going first. I want to talk a little bit about your role at Glassdoor. I think there are some really interesting performance and cultural angles to explore within the work environment. So so let's start with actually framing for people that don't know Glassdoor as an organization. Let's talk about it. What What's the mission of Glassdoor? Sure. Okay. So Glassdoor's mission is very explicitly to help job seekers everywhere find a job that they love. Um, and that's uh, a mission of passion. Everyone who works at Glassdoor feels very passionate about trying to accomplish that. So the founders of Glassdoor were actually originally with Expedia, which came out of Microsoft. They've also worked at Hotwire and Zillow. And all of those companies have something in common. They were two-sided marketplace organizations. And their focus was essentially on disrupting what they saw as a power asymmetry in each of those industries. And the recruiting marketplace seemed like it was a good place to um, port that idea to. 
They saw some similarities in that employers and hiring managers held all of the power in the job-seeking transaction, whereas the job-seeker had none. And so the idea behind the company was to level the playing field, so to give more insight and information to the job-seeker by bringing more transparency to the hiring process and to the organizations who were hiring, and it rebalances the power effectively in that hiring process. So Glassdoor believes that more informed candidates or job seekers are actually better long-term employees since they play an active role in their own selection process. And 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 as you've sort of been a part of this and you've you've seen sort of I mean it's obviously you've been in HR for a long time but now you you sort of take a step back and you're really immersed in the corporate landscape as it were across not just glass door but obviously a, a wide landscape of so many companies and so many employees and employers I guess I should say so have you seen uh, maybe your your mindset of your or your landscape sort of shift is, is the, do you see an emerging change in the corporate landscape especially with the greater transparency that that is now coming definitely in fact um Glassdoor and companies like it have brought a lot of um, transparency to how organizations actually work. And I believe that that's forced those companies to be better employers because it's impacted how you think about the work environment that you offer, the opportunities you provide employees and candidates. Um, and it's definitely impacted my work and the work of the HR teams that I've um, worked with. It both elevates our voice at the executive table, but it also creates a lot of pressure on HR teams to push companies to really think about their employment value proposition and what they're trying to do to attract great employees. And, and I can see that with a, uh, you know, look, that most of the people that I work with at Purple Patch are a time staff. So they're basically trying to crack the code on, uh, with my athletes, how can I fit performance, athletic performance, into a really time-starved life? And all the conversations that I have, they're really sort of juggling institutions, their own fitness and health or their aspirations in sport, oftentimes their family, and then, of course, work. So as you think about it through the candidates or the employees' standpoint, there must be or there should be sort of an assist for them, yeah, helping helping mm-hmm. find appropriate jobs but what have you seen this look like since you've been a part of it? Or what are the lessons that are starting to, to, to be able to extract from that? What are the candidates sort of looking for in, in the work environment? Yeah, I think what you're seeing is um, something that's happening globally. It's, um, it's become very clear that today's employees, be them millennial or any other generation, they actually want more than just a job. Mm-hmm. So they want a company where they can show up, do their best work, but also be themselves, share in an important mission, develop their own careers, and grow as people, individuals, as well as employees. And all of the research that we have done at Glassdoor specifically has borne this out. It's really clear from our data, and we have a lot of it that supports this notion. But for the companies, it's important for them to respond to that demand from employees by creating very clear employment value propositions that consider that we talk about the whole employee. So in other words, it's important for companies to offer an opportunity to do really interesting work as part of a bigger mission, but also balance that with all of the other aspects of employees' lives by enabling them to pursue the things that are important for them to thrive. So everything from more flexible time to allow for outside pursuits, including sports, um, but also things like volunteer time to help with the causes that are important to the employees. We have lots of examples, but and organizations are increasingly feeling the pressure to provide that type of framework for employees. And honestly, that stuff's no longer optional um, for a company. The very best employees demand it, and if you don't offer it, they will go to a company that will offer it to them. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that in a little while. I think I'm going to ask you about uh, it, what motivates employees. So, so yeah, sorry to, sorry to interject there, but... Uh, you, you talked about the best employees demand it. So in your lens, what's the, what are the, the best employees? Let, let's talk about what that means. Yeah, so uh, the best employees are the ones who perform optimally, optimally for your company. And what we've seen, and it shows up again in our data, is that they're most motivated by the mission of the company. So coming to work every day is more than just a job for them. Um, they typically have multiple other things going on, and they thrive in environments that allow them the flexibility to pursue all of that. So, in fact, at Glassdoor, we no longer talk about the concept of work-life balance. We actually talk about work-life fit 
And I think that's a really important distinction because it's as much a mindset as anything else. And in many ways, it's, I think it's a more useful way to think about integrating work with life. So you're looking for fit as opposed to balance. I think that's really important. And in fact, when, when, you know, for me, myself on a coaching side, people always say, I want to find balance in my life. And we actually dissuade people from looking at it like that because there's, there's purposeful focus. And so, so even within the spectrum of life, we, we have people at certain times of their life when it ebbs and flows to have a more intense focus on the sport when the life has that. So it's quite interesting because when you sort of say, okay, we no longer talk about work-life balance. I, from the outside, have been dissuading athletes to try and think about this utopian idea of balance. That's actually not what high performance is about in many ways. Yeah, and that's a, a very strong trigger for a lot of the work that we're trying to do in the company for our employees. And honestly, I think the epiphany we had was that striving for that work-life balance seems really challenging, but work-life fit is something that anyone can control. And the other um, important thing to think about is that a lot of the tools and technology and that, that companies are now um, offering to their employees is typically so that you can connect anywhere from anywhere and when you need to. And we hear a lot of people saying, oh, this is um, terrible. It's really impacting my life. But you can also flip that around to view it as these are tools to enable you to fit work into your life. And if you do that, I think it gives you a completely different perspective. You're back in control. And, and it's, you know, it's, I mean, I agree with that. It's sort of like the, the, in many ways, the optimal fit of technology to try and fit a specific purpose, isn't it? But so, so what really comes out of that is this, this transitional component of the employee and what they're actually asking for. And in really ways, the best what they're demanding. Hey, this has to actually fit That's my right. life. I'm just not falling into a framework. And then at the other side, the tension of the employer to having to morph and adapt their lens on what they, mm-hmm. they sort of create for, for themselves as a, as a workplace. And I, I guess as a, proverbial leader in this sort of transparency from an employer standpoint as a company that must um that must create almost self self-imposed great pressure to create a gold standard of that you cannot afford to be weak on these elements which which by de facto puts a whole bunch of pressure on you surely <laughs> yes it does um, so i talk a lot about um, with our clients that doing hr at last door has a particular pressure and that's for a couple of reasons, because we have to eat our own dog food. So there's no way I cannot embrace transparency fully because we can't ask our clients to do something that we're not prepared to do ourselves. But also our last door employees expect us to live up to that premise too. So I talked to the HR team at Glassdoor about we have a great opportunity. So we're essentially a living laboratory within the organization. Um, and that makes us think a lot about how to ensure that the environment that we offer our employees enables them to thrive and do their best work and how we engage them in the mission of the company, how we organize the programs that we offer to demonstrate how much we value them. So that includes everything from flexible scheduling, the office layout, the environment, um, that includes where we're located. So, for example, our headquarters in Mill Valley are right at the start of the bike path, which mm-hmm. um, is super cool. We have an on-site gym. We offer lots of yoga classes and so on. So we have a big focus on employee wellness because we believe it matters. But most importantly, we provide the opportunity for them to grow and develop their careers while being part of a great mission. And so we constantly remind them of that mission and the purpose. Do, do you see that? And, and by the way, before I ask the follow-up question, at, at Purple Patch, we have our own version of the living laboratory as well. It's interesting terminology. <laughs> Ours are our pro athletes. And so, uh, I mean, the nice thing about that is I get to prod and poke and and um, and and uh, make them suffer a lot, all in the pursuit of trying to understand methodology and how it creates. We have our own living lab, but it's it's way less pressure-filled, at, at least on the coaching side. But but your last point there of sort of most importantly, the opportunity to grow and develop careers. Do you sort of view that there's a, there's a sort of trendy phrase that's going around that I find myself using a lot around the optimized self. And, and when I coach time-starved amateurs, I always talk about however you are outside of work, you will bring that to work. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of part of the mission and goal? Would you say for, for your own mission and goal at, at Glassdoor to sort of, try and set up 
thriving high performers in both work and life? Um, very much so. In fact, um, within Glassdoor, the mission of the HR team, which, by the way, we call the people team, um, is to enable Glassdoor as a company, but also its employees to perform optimally. And we express that specifically as that mission. Um, so all of the people programs are built with that in mind. So it's anchored in our belief that if we have high-performing employees, then we'll have a high-performing company. So we spend a lot of think time thinking about what actually enables people to perform at their very best. So it means looking at all of the programs through that lens, from wellness to the way we ask our managers to lead their teams, which we take a, a little bit of a different take on, to also how we organize work and schedules. And it extends um, very specifically to asking our employees to take responsibility for driving their own careers and growth and figuring out what they need in order to thrive here at Glassdoor. So we tell them all the time that we can offer the resources and programs to help them, but that they must determine what they need or want and step up to take advantage of those. And that's an important imperative for us. And, and do you see that as the, uh, as the standard? Like, do, do, do you actually see companies wanting to emulate you wanting to like do they actually come to you for advice as well now you're, you're the glass door you're the transparency <laughs> but in many ways you should be or, or emerging to be sort of a leader in company culture in many ways yeah yeah so many com many of the companies um who i speak to are struggling with how to create the right environment for their employees to to thrive and to perform optimally. So it's something that we try to leverage our insights that we get, not just from all of the companies that are on the site, but also from our own practices in our living laboratory to see if that can help them. It's interesting. Now, now you talked about management a little bit and, um, and, and there's a real shift in leadership style. At least you're, you're looking for a shift in leadership mm -hmm. style, which seems more comprehensive. It's, <laughs> it's no longer enough to tell people, uh, what to do and, uh, and just right. holding accountable in many ways. It's, you know, one of the things as you were talking there, I sort of, I, it forced me to look in the mirror and I sort of thought about coaching. And it's quite interesting because coaching of all levels of athletes now, it, it, it is so much more than just prescription. In other words, these are what, this is what you should do, writing the training plan, which unfortunately I think many coaches fall into the trap of. And athletes, what's the plan? Let me follow the plan. But really what coaching is and, and what certainly what it has become across certainly endurance sports is yes, there is an element of prescription or planning and that has to obviously integrate into an athlete's life, what their goals are, etc. But in support of that, it goes much broader. There has to be this very in-depth education of intent so that the athlete can execute as intended. And then this cycle of accountability to ensure that the athlete is doing it, feedback to continue to educate them, and then ultimately adaptation relative to the execution, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And I think a lot of coaches miss that. Um, I think there are parallels to that, to sort of what you're, you're talking about of the shift in the management style and lens to actually make employees high performers, yeah? Very much so. In fact, we spend a lot of time with our managers talking about how their responsibility is to set the expectations for the employees in this case and to help them understand what they need to do to get there. But then the employees need to take responsibility for the actual getting there. And then the managers come in with feedback. So we have this very tight feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's really what we refer to as accountability. So set expectations, give feedback accountability and, and there's a real sort of empowerment thing to this i always i always talk about uh dictator style coaching never being effective in the long term certain people can thrive under sort of a, a militant dictator or that style of coach but certainly my style is is i would say more about empowerment so enforcing ownership on the employee so you set up a framework of what you think is there for their success but then you empower them to actually navigate that with feedback as you go along, which for me creates an elite performer. And, and mm -hmm. that seems like that really resonates with um, with really what you're talking about here with management style. It's, it's leadership. It's not dictatorial. That's right. And actually, um, we very much place an emphasis on the employees personally investing in themselves and taking responsibility for what um, for their own performance, because we know that unless they do, um, we won't achieve what we need to as a company. So we talk about our employees needing to have skin in the game, 
mm-hmm. um, and really look at um, coming to work as a way to invest in themselves and taking ownership over their careers. And if we, they don't, we b- don't believe we'll have a good long-term relationship with them. And honestly, our job is to create the right environment for them and to want them to, for them to want to be here and for them to thrive, because we believe that if they're not um, taking ownership for their own journey, then there's no true alignment. And in the end, we won't be successful as a company. So that's a really important part of it. And then the managers are there to cheer them on and make sure they're held accountable and get the feedback that they need. It's a real sort of balance of responsibility, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's really what it comes down to is... There's, there's buy-in from both sides. There's actually, I love that. There's skin in the game. Many people come to, uh, come to me and, uh, as a, as a coach and because they are being led by me, they just think they have to follow the plan. Mm-hmm. And the first thing we talk about is no, this is a partnership, which is, is really the optimal dream relationship for employer and ultimately employee as well in many ways. Yeah. And in fact, that hankers back to, the original concept behind Glassdoor, which is it was imbalanced before, and that balanced partnership is actually the key to having an effective relationship between employer and employee. Now, it all sounds very rosy. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it sounds like you're changing the world, but there, there must be challenges or, or growing pains because, look, you, you talk about change, this disruption, this rebalancing. It's, um, it's uncomfortable, and, it, and, and I assume it must be unco- really uncomfortable for the companies as much as anything. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the uh, there is no one formula anymore. And I think increasingly companies are realizing that um, what works for one doesn't necessarily work for others. Um, listening to your employees is really important. And it's very uncomfortable for employees, um, a lot of what we're asking them to take ownership over their own careers. So, so for example, the idea of being in charge of your career success can be um, very uncomfortable for you. And in fact, we've noticed a lot of employees resist because they like to think of the company as being responsible that once they show up, they can hand over responsibility for everything that happens to the employer. Mm-hmm. So we get a lot of our employees saying, um, hang on at my friend's company, they offer 24 seven dry cleaning or whatever it is, whatever today's little fashionable perk is. But our belief actually is that as an organization, we need to create a little friction in the system and that it's actually healthy for us to have that. So we don't offer every imaginable perk. Um, we think all that does in the end is create a sense of entitlement. It's also easy, interesting for any other company to replicate. So it really doesn't in the end make you more attractive as an employer. And in fact, our research shows that people join and stay with companies for three reasons. It's very clear. The mission and culture, the leadership, and then career development opportunities. So we focus on providing the chance for everyone who shows up to check all those boxes rather than trying to be their mother by eliminating any possible discomfort. So we ask our employees to take charge of themselves and then the company needs to create the right environment for them to thrive in. So we do know it's healthier in the long run. Our data supports that and it directly impacts the performance of both them and the company, but it is uncomfortable in getting there. I have to say it sounds a little bit like uh, you're you're describing at least the ethos of Purple Patch Coaching (laughs) in a way because uh, we always talk about athletes coming in and just checking the box. Here's my plan my responsibility has been given to this coach or this coaching organization. I just need to do the plan. So I check the box, check the box and assume success will come for the organization, Purple Patch and for them as an athlete. And it is not comfortable to force the athlete to think, to have ownership, to really be in charge of their own career. And, um, and the higher up, of course, it becomes even more uncomfortable because the stakes are higher. So with our professional athletes, we actually force that and um we don't make everything comfortable for them and we uh we set up an environment where hey we're here to support but they have to have real ownership and um and and so just remind me one more time so i I missed that of the three reasons to stay with companies mission and culture leadership and career opportunity career you you didn't say dollars and cents then so no actually um very clear on the data that that does not compel people to stay at a company. So just to be clear, it is an important factor, but it's not, it doesn't show up ever in the top three. So it's an interesting thing. It's interesting. And you obviously collect a, a lot of data. So, so it really, what you're, everything that you're saying here is, is most of it validated with the data you're collecting? Yeah, 
It is. So again, back to the living lab concept. So we get a lot of data. We have um, over 50 million unique users every month to the Glassdoor site. So we capture a lot of data and we really get insight into what motivates people to want to come to a company or stay there. So we use that data to help inform our programs, but we also use it to help our clients understand how to sort of compel people to come work for them. So yeah, it's not just my opinion. We actually, a lot of this stuff is borne out by the facts that we see on the site let me ask one more question does uh does your time there so far does it does it fill you with hope for the cultural environment of the uh of the corporate setting um yes because i think companies are increasingly realizing that um they're more than just offering jobs to employees and that for them to be successful, they have to be considerate of the whole person. And I think that's really exciting news for those of us who are working every day um, and a good opportunity for all of us to think about how to integrate work into the rest of your life. Super. Well, let's talk about you. Let's make a segue. Let's go into section two. This is, uh, <laughs> let's we're, talk we're about gonna, me. Let's talk about you. You know, I, I, talking about myself is my favorite subject, <laughs> but, uh, but I think my second favorite subject in, in stories of inspiration is you and your athletic prowess. So, um, jo- joking aside, look, you're, you're an elite performer in the workplace, as I like to say that, um, in parallel, I think that genuinely you've been in a on a wonderful journey of discovery to what i call the athletic mindset and and the integrated lifestyle i mean you you are a success story as as much as you hate me say that (laughs) let let me frame who you are as an athlete in parentheses so far so you you know growing up you were a casual runner growing up you did some high school running yeah Mm -hmm, yeah Um, but in adult in adult life never never saw a serious athlete and your first marathon was in 2008 in Sacramento. In Sacramento, I remember you, you doing it. And you've done a, a few more and then started riding your bike after Zoe was born, your That's third right. daughter. Uh, and Zoe is now 12. 12. So about 10 years ago that you, you got onto the bike. And four years ago, your first triathlon, the legendary Wildflower <laughs> Triathlon. That's right. D- did you come close to beating Purple Patch Pro Jesse Thomas that won there six uh, years? Um, yeah, at least um, before I got out of bed that morning. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've uh, competed in a couple of half Ironmans. So, so you are you have competed with in two half Ironman distance triathlons, which is fantastic. But the reason that, that I'm excited to discuss your own performance is I think that you have a story that, that so many are going to be able to associate with and empathize with and hopefully, therefore, be inspired because I, I see it as sort of a journey of facing your fears, overcoming challenge and ultimately not quitting. And um, and we say this as we talk about this, it hasn't been a quick fix. Uh, <laughs> it hasn't. It really hasn't. I mean, I see you thriving now for the last couple of years, but let's go back, you sort of 2008. So it's been been in many ways, it's a 10 year journey to find yourself thriving um, with everything fitting. So let's get on with it. Who are you now? And how do you identify yourself athletically? Yeah, so that's a funny question. um, Because I don't really think of myself as an athlete, but I do um, obviously work out surrounded by lots of real athletes. So I think of myself more as a semi-sophisticated exerciser, um, <laughs> genuinely. But when I'm training, um, in terms of how I think about where it fits for me, it's because I wanted to accomplish a few things in my life. So the most important ones, I want to be a really good role model for my three daughters. Um, I think sport offers some incredible life lessons, and it's really important to me to be a role model for them and to do it as well as talk about it. Um, it obviously provides great stress relief. But Additionally, it helps me engage a different part of my brain, um, and I find it fascinating from a psychological standpoint to just sort of observe almost how it impacts me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, I, I do it to be healthy, which I think is really important. And we'll dig into the sort of the different part of the brain later. I have actually some thoughts and questions on that as well. But I think we have to go back because <laughs> you now, uh, and, and f- for listeners at home, you are sort of, by all intents and purposes, a fully integrated member of the Purple Patch training squad, as it were, here in San Francisco. So you swim with us, you do bike classes, running, and and now strength. So you're sort of multi-sport, although I wouldn't identify you, as you say, you're not a triathlete per se. You're, you're a multi-sport athlete. 
but none of these I think have been natural gateways of, of progression. So let's, let's go through them. Let's start with the swim. And tell me about your glorious uh, <laughs> swimming background. Yeah. So, um, this is funny because, uh, the year that I did wildflower right before that, I was actually terrified of water. Um, so I was genuinely afraid to put my face in water um, and had never swam a stroke in my life prior to that. So I, I laugh sometimes when people tell me that they can't swim and when I know that what they really mean is that I'm not that strong. <laughs> but I tell them, no, I really couldn't swim at all. In fact, I was terrified it. But it was actually on a day where I had my kids down at swim class at uh, a local San Francisco swim school called La Petite Beline. And I was listening to their instructor talking to them about how to put their face in water and blow bubbles. And I thought to myself, wow, I could actually do that. Maybe that's what, the, <laughs> that's what I've been missing. I had never realized that that's how you put your face in water. So um, I took myself off to a pool. I tried it. And to this day, when I have my face in water, I still blow bubbles. Well, and, um, and, and, and I, you know, I mean, th this is generally, I, I cannot overemphasize this enough. When we were actually in Hawaii to watch the Hawaii Ironman, you joined us. And um, I remember you eff effectively refusing to go into the, the sea, into the ocean mm -hmm. to, to do any snorkeling because you couldn't put your face in. And, and it wasn't this fear of sharks. It was literally going above your knees in water was, yeah. a, was a very real <laughs> it does say something about the irish education system with their, <laughs> with their swimming programs because uh, i haven't met too many good irish swimmers but uh, there are a couple but um yeah, there was a couple of great ones but, that were helped along in their journey <laughs> so, so this is it you sort of had this fear you had absolutely no background and yet you sort of made this, this, this decision and uh, you know you've got kids now that are that are growing up that are starting to dance around the pool so what was what was that catalyst or how did that work yeah so it was pretty simple really I realized that I needed to be able to um, swim with my kids that I was missing out on the opportunity to hang out with them since they all love the pool and the ocean um, and I also just thought I would be very sad if I was to die at some point, never knowing what it was actually like to swim, um, what seemed to me like a fairly basic skill set. So um, I took myself off to get a few private lessons um, and immediately gave myself a really ridiculous goal at the time of trying to do wildflower within the year. Which was the Olympic distance. The Olympic yeah. distance, yeah. yeah. Um, and the only reason I kind of picked a lofty goal from having no face in water to actually swimming wildflower was because I thought if I don't um, really push myself, I probably won't continue to plug away at it. So um, that was my goal. And so I went a lot to the pool um, and it took a lot of, um, you know, mind games to get myself in there every day, but I just sucked it up. Um, did a lot of self-breathing. I talked to myself constantly. Um, and then I very quickly realized I needed to get into an open water situation if I was ever going to be able to tackle wildflower. And so I came up with the idea of just counting to 100 in my head as many times as I needed to in order to get around the course. Um, and that's what I did. It was as simple as that. Um, and now I actually, I can't imagine not being able to swim anymore. Um, I'm sure I'm not particularly pretty to look at, but I really enjoy it. I find it to be one of the best exercises. I kind of regret never having done it years ago because I think I could have been awesome. Um, <laughs> but I have, um, interestingly, opened up a whole new opportunity for myself to kind of get inside my brain and see how to um, think about that fear and what makes me continually go back to tackle it. And, and, and now I'd like to paint the picture. I mean, you, you are swimming three times a week with the squad hitting at least 3,000 on a small day, but t typically 4,000 yards or more every session. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, you're, you're up at <laughs> ten to 12,000 yards. Per uh, week. Yeah, week <laughs> genuinely training, which is, which, is, uh, which is fantastic. By the way, your tactic of open water swimming and counting to 100 was not foolish. In fact, there was a very good runner called Paula Radcliffe, who still holds the world record. And in the last uh, 10K of her marathons, she would just cycle through counting one to 100. Uh -huh. And that was the way to disassociate for her all of the external uh, features. Uh, at least that's what I read sometime. I don't <laughs> know Paula personally, but I think that's... Uh, that's so maybe that, I really am an elite athlete inside. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, so with, with, with people that... With so many triathletes that I know, swimming... In fact, if you, if you look at the research... 
the number one reason for people not participating is the fear of swimming. And um, uh, so, so what advice do you have for people that are sitting here to say, I don't know, and not many people don't know how to swim, how you don't know how to swim, at least in your situation. But um, what advice do you have around that? So I do feel a little bit silly giving anyone swimming advice, but I'll do it anyway. Um, in the context of confronting fear, so the, a couple of things that served me well. One is to find a reason to do it that was bigger than just being able to swim. And so for me, that was wanting to be able to swim with my kids. And then the other thing is I made it a project. So I set my, I broke it down into little goals and milestones that I tried to reach. And honestly, I genuinely, once I made the goal to swim at Wildflower, I never thought about it again. I simply focused on getting from one end of the pool to the other every time. And I just tried to extend that each time I went into the pool. And, and that was, I, I think that's important because you saw little goals and milestones, but it wasn't all about just your Garmin data and things like that, oh, no. was it? It was, <laughs> it was, it was completion and doing it as well as you could. This wasn't sort of, you weren't shackled by metrics. In fact, you've never really been shackled by metrics, I'd say, no? No, that's right. And actually, I did think that it was a golden opportunity for me to learn how to do it right from the beginning. So I did pay attention to trying to learn the technique. Um, I thought, well, that's one advantage you can have from never having swum before, which you can learn to do it correctly. Now, we're going to come back to swimming because we want to talk about uh, community and the value that that's been because you do swim in a squad and a group environment, which I think is very valuable. And we'll come back to that. But now we're going to go to a place of uh, of a time where I essentially uh, tried to kill you. And uh, <laughs> let's talk about cycling. And, you know, this is um, th- th- I've done a few good things as a coach. Certain things haven't been quite as good. This story is uh, is not one of my proudest moments. In fact, it, it still sometimes wakes me up at night. But cycling, you you had a horrific crash that was honestly induced by myself. Uh, <laughs> let, let's talk about your riding journey because th- this is another sort of overcoming story, which I think is is absolutely amazing. And, and we have to go back ten years. Yeah, I think it was when you were you were turning forty. Yeah, mm-hmm. two thousand and eight. Okay. So my first epic year back in sport. So I had a a three big goals in the year I turned 40 project in 2008. And I thought they were um, ranging from the very ambitious to the mildly challenging in this order. So I wanted to get to the base camp at Mount Everest. I wanted to run a marathon. And then the least challenging was meant to be I wanted to ride 100 miles on my bike. So the irony is I achieved both of the first two pretty easily. Um, but to this day, my Garmin has been frozen at 91 miles on the bike ride. I never actually got to the 100. Um, and to cut what I could make into a very long story short, I did exactly what I was told to do when I was coming down into Petaluma on a hill. My good friend, Matt, you, um, <laughs> told me to stay on his back wheel which I did, and I guess I surprised him at my ability to really stay stuck on your back wheel. Um, And, uh, yeah, I don't remember what happened next, but I do know that I guess you must have stopped or turned right or something, and I didn't read the cues. And so uh, I did an epic face plant, and the result of which was I had a helmet split in two, and I was face down in a pool of blood out cold. So the good news is I have no memory of the actual crash. I just remember right before it, and I do remember trying to be very obedient. And then the next time I remember anything was about four hours later when I came to in the trauma center in Santa Rosa. And so the net-net was I had a traumatic brain injury with some brain bleeding. Um, And to this day, I have some lovely scars on my eye and my chin, and I appear to have recovered fully, although sometimes I do wonder. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, to, to paint, I, I unfortunately am burdened with memory, with <laughs> no remembering what happened. And it, and it was, just as you say, you know, at, at top of the hill, a winding hill, and I ended up descending down there quite fast, uh, probably 35 to 40 miles an hour. Impossible for a, a rookie like yourself at the time, <laughs> at 91 miles to stay on me. And, uh, and so I just braked and turned around to say, hey, I'm going to turn right, and you were on my wheel, and uh, there was only one person that was responsible for that, so let, let this be the public uh, apology. We've <laughs> talked about it many times, but uh, it, it was one of the scarier crashes I've ever seen. It was um, 
it, it was corrosive and certainly it was enough that as you came out and as you came out of hospital, I, I made the assumption that you were probably done with your bike in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I absolutely declared that I was done with my bike. Um, I remember coming back from the hospital and my kids freaked out. They were really upset when they saw me. Um, so I did decide it wasn't worth it um, and that I would pursue running instead. But you got back on. I did. So then I quickly moved to, you know, I can't let this beat me. So uh, after some prompting, I think from you and from Pete, my husband, I went for a few easy rides, um, doing the Paradise Loop here locally, which is fairly safe. But then I quickly got a little more ambitious and then realized that I was actually terrified coming down hills. And the funny part about that is I was never terrified before the crash of coming down hills, Mm -hmm. probably because I was too ignorant to consider the consequences Mm -hmm. of crashing. But there was one specific ride where I was doing the Seven Sisters with you, and we were coming down Pantol. And for anyone who knows Pantol, it's a pretty tricky uh, downhill kind of four-mile descent. And right at the very beginning of it, I had a minor panic attack on the bike, and I think I had even a few tears. So I was really freaked out, and I remember you coming back and, and very nicely telling me to quit being a baby. And to get on your wheel, but slowly this time. So I did that. And as we went down the hill, I actually remember very clearly realizing that I could do it if I just did the same old thing that I've done in other parts of my life when I'm confronting fear, which is focus on the process. Yeah. So I made it to the bottom that day fully intact. And then I quickly forced myself to go out a lot more often and just keep doing it until it became more comfortable. Yeah. So honestly, it was not an overnight solve. It took a lot of dedication for me to continue to do it. But the same thing that worked for me with swimming worked here, which was breaking it down into little mini intervals. And to this day, every time I ride downhill, I hum a song to myself to try and move my brain away from the fear. So it's probably similar to the counting to 100 in the swim. It's the thing that comes out, though, is is not just turning and being brave, but it's actually the tactics of, and it's process-driven, you actually breaking down the problem into things that you can control versus... Mm -hmm thinking about the outcomes and then repetition, repetition. And and out of that is born familiarity. And once you are familiar, fear dissipates. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's going back to the swim. I think that is critical for a fear, um, fear focused open water swimmer to actually become familiar. And, and with riding going downhill, it's, it's natural for many people that are less familiar to have fear to think about consequences, but the only way to confront and overcome is to become familiar and actually establish control, and you do that through practice. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been now something that didn't induce fear, but certainly wasn't your favorite was <laughs> strength training. And you have long heard me talk about the role in strength, and um, and you, you you could never quite buy into that. You bought into the concept, but you just hated strength training had a lot of false starts and yet now here we are a year of doing strength training so i'm really interested i haven't asked you this but the have you started to shift your lens on strength and has there been a a series of benefits for you doing it yes in this case i have to say yes matthew you are right (laughs) thank you very much (laughs) so honestly i can't say enough about this because i really did genuinely hate the idea of strength training i I started so many times and maybe did three sessions and then bailed. I've always been able to find a great excuse not to do it. So I've realized a few things. Number one, I can't do it by myself. I'm just not motivated enough. But I did notice that as we talked about it, I had lots of little injuries that would never completely go away. Um, And with much nagging from you and also honestly from Peter, I finally agreed to at least try. And so my important step was I agreed to only three months. Um, so I remained skeptical. And, and it was I, a defined project for yes, you. I it would was. do this as a project. That, same as your other approach yep. to overcoming, yeah. <laughs> and so I said, if I didn't see anything in three months, I was going to quit and just tell you you were wrong again. Um, but it's 18 months later, and I'm completely religious about it. So I hate missing a strength session. In fact, more than anything else in the week, it's the thing I will try to do. 
And honestly, I'm not really sure why that is. The sessions I go to are a blend of mobility exercises and strength work. So there's lots of variety. It's never the same. Um, I found somebody great to work with who's also a physical therapist, and he just makes each session really interesting. I have never not felt better after my sessions. Yeah. So no matter how badly I feel going in, he will adapt the session to make it feel good for me afterwards. And I have noticed a massive difference in the power that I hold on the bike. So that's what really tipped me over the edge after my three month um, trial period. I realized that I could actually push more power on the bike. Mm-hmm. I think it's made me leaner. I at least feel it. And honestly, it feels like it was the missing element for me. So no matter how much practice and training I did and all the other things, this was the one thing that I'd never tried. And I really wish I had started a lot sooner. I will say that one of my secrets to maintaining consistency is is that I do each session with my friend Catherine. And by having to show up for it, it holds me really accountable. And that helps a lot. Yeah, I think that was really important that the elements that you say there of having this defined project to start with a great leader in, in your trainer who's done a super job and then having the accountability and a sense of community where it becomes something that you do. Uh, one of the things I've seen, uh, it, it, not just you, you absolutely have become leaner, but there's a huge postural difference. The way that you're sitting on the bike, the way that you run, the way that you stand and you and you come and walk in. And that, that's a that's a really interesting thing that you you only get to see if you sort of see people over time at a long time that there is this overall feeling better the way that you stand it, it's obviously been a, a sort of fundamental pivot point for you and I think the gateway for you then to maximize the yield from your endurance components which is which is obviously you want to improve so that's been a, mm-hmm. a huge catalyst for you Let, let's switch gears a little bit because I want to come back we started talking today about glass door and then we're talking about you and your endurance and, and athletic mindset. So what was the role of what you think of endurance sport in the, the greater fabric of work and life performance sort of circling around? Yeah, so I think about this a lot. And I think there are many, many parallels between sport and um, kind of performing more generally in work and life. Um, some of the parallels are a bit obvious and some of them are less so. So for me personally, I always come to work with a lot more energy on the days that I do something like swimming or biking before work. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps me focus a lot more. It gives me a lot more mental clarity. And obviously there's the stress relief. But but much more than that, actually, um, what's been fascinating for me is I've been able to draw on the lessons that I learn in each of the sporting pursuits that I'm engaged in to help me every single day at work. So it's everything from understanding how important it is to focus on process and execution, as we've just talked about, yep. goal setting, accountability, the regular check-ins, which I do with my team, um, how to build a support network, really important in your career, um, and then this relentless focus on the outcome. And I think it's the mixture of events that have been particularly useful in helping me engage the different muscles and aspects of my brain. So ironically, the multidimensional nature of triathlon has, has been really helpful to me as I grow my skills as an executive. It requires you to be very agile and adaptable, and I need that every day as in my work as well. Okay, so that's really interesting there. You, you sort of talk about triathlon or, or multi-sport in general. There's, there's obviously multiple disciplines. In, our, in your case, you swim, you bike, you run, you do strength. And the fact that each one has a, a different challenge, it brings something else, it sort of feeds into the the necessity for you to be multidimensional in work and life in many ways, particularly as an executive, yeah? Yeah, it, it really does. Um, so my job requires me to move from very big picture, big projects to little tasks and things I have to, to complete every single day, multiple times a day. And I find that the dexterity I have learned through balancing the the multidiscipline in the sport is actually really helpful at work. And honestly, actually also in greater life, because I have to move from, you know, being a mother to three girls into work, um, from there into trying to be, you know, at least decent at swimming, biking, running and all other aspects of my life. And I think the complexity that's involved in having um, to think about those three sports helps a lot in terms of building my skill set to tackle them in other parts of my life. How about goal setting? Because you, you know, I think this is coming out that that uh, you do events still, so you have this sort of athletic mindset. You've successfully integrated it all, but do you feel like you sort of 
compete in events or complete events and how do the event structure and how do you actually set goals? Yeah. So, um, events for me are more of a, a a way to provide focus rather than really being my end goal. Um, I sign up for them because they give me kind of a framework to the projects that I engage on or embark on. Um, so I think more about the mission. So for example, as you know, I sometimes do multi-day bike trips with friends. Um, Mm -hmm. so the mission in that case might be that I want to be able to show up to those bike trips and be really comfortable rather than be dying every day to hanging on to everybody else. So before a bike trip like that, which I will consider a project, I would build up to it for several months using my purple patch plan. Um, but I would try to include some events as nearer term goals so that it gives me focus to that project. It keeps me progressing and it helps me hold myself accountable. So I would say I'm never really focused on trying to achieve certain times in an event but for success for me is whether I feel well prepared and ready on the day. So if I can actually enjoy the event, then I consider it to be a success. A really good example of that is I did the North Face Endurance Half um, Marathon yeah. in October. Yeah. Tra- having Training for it using multi-sport. That's yeah? right. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I can tell you that running played very little part in my preparation for that mm-hmm. event um, because I wasn't feeling great about running, but I showed up on the day and had a great race. And a lot of it was about finding ways to build my strength um, prior to that. You know, it's, it's funny because, you know, I work with a lot of executives and then I work with professional athletes and elite athletes. And the one common theme, interestingly, around defining success and, and excellence, one component is the passion of the journey. And while all of them are obviously as you said earlier, relentlessly pursuing outcomes, the real passion and success of those outcomes comes in the immersion of the the journey in many ways, which is interesting because that's how you've sort of framed your success mm-hmm. in many ways. That's almost a compliment there, by the way. <laughs> I won't get carried <laughs> away. So, so let's, let's focus on, because we, you know, we've gone through sort of 10 years of your, your sort of athletic mindset and career development on the, the performance side, but the big evolution in the last 18 months that's occurred, we, we talked about the catalyst of strength training and what that's done. And, uh, but at a more global level, what have been the sort of fundamental habits or components to your success what would you say if you said okay this is what's actually really helped me accelerate in the last 18 months or so yeah um so two big things jump out um that have really changed how i actually think about um the sport but also have how i've managed to integrate it into my life so one is being consistent Mm-hmm. So I really try to never miss a session unless there's a really good reason. Um, and just some days it might be better than others, but showing up is a really important part. Just show up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and that's a big change for me because previously, um, if I thought I wasn't in top form, I might not go. Um, and I've gotten rid of that. And, and, and I would also say just, uh, just tangentially going back to the top of our conversation, that is possible because of the culture of your work environment in many That's ways right. as well. If it was old school working, that might become really challenging. Sorry, we don't care. You've got to take this meeting now type thing. That's right. In fact, to that point, I have made showing up to those sessions a priority in my day and mm-hmm. I schedule my work around them. Which which actually is exactly the same of many of the CEOs that I work with. It is a direct calendared event that has the same weight mm-hmm. and the same importance as literally or almost anything else that they do so 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 consistency one of the key words to great performance evolution by the way so consistency and and then you mentioned there was one other i think yeah so community so i get that in lots of ways um through sport and it's a really valuable outcome from indulging in this stuff but i try to use the sports sessions or the exercise sessions as an opportunity to socialize Mm -hmm. so you kind of get your uh, two for one use of time um but actually it does a whole lot more than that so it holds me accountable because people i know are expecting me to be there Um, and honestly i just have really good fun doing this stuff with other people rather than just on my own it makes it um you know um, a good time in my day every day and a great opportunity to to hold myself accountable which i think even because in our community we have uh very serious professional athletes that are competing in the same room in the same pool as you but they one of the things we try and enhance is a 
leave your ego at home thing. So mm -hmm. everyone's there for the same reason, which is trying to improve. And there is permission to have fun, even yeah. though many people have got, everyone really has got a serious pursuit of performance in whatever is the right context for them. But I think enjoying it and having fun and giving people the permission to that is the, is the only way to make them thrive in many ways. Yeah, and there's another quick aspect to that that I think is important to mention is it takes you out of the environment that you're most comfortable in. So um, for me, my community at work is a bunch of other professionals who are doing similar work to me. Whereas once a day, I get to be in a session with people who are from all sorts of different walks of life. And it's a great opportunity to kind of engage your brain on a different level. Fantastic. Um, so I also think it's worth pointing out that Focus, focusing on the multidiscipline thing has changed everything for me. So you talk about my evolution in the last 18 months. Yeah. Um, so I t think about it as being my no excuse period because I can always do one of the disciplines. I don't have any more injury excuses. It's and a that, huge factor. Actually, that is one of the great things about the triathlon in many ways or moldy sports is you can nearly always do one of them. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's been a cool, um, epiphany for me actually um and in fact on the strength training um sessions we apply the same methodology so if you feel tweaky in a shoulder then you focus on working on everything around it um mm -hmm. so i use that all the time and it stopped me making the excuses that i used to fall back on um i find it really interesting intellectually because i think about it all the time how the three sports fit together and how i can adapt myself to be solid in each one um it's helped me see how one discipline can really aid your effectiveness in the other. And then the strength training helps, you know, lift everything. And then honestly, as you've probably gathered from our discussion, it really appeals to the way that I like to tackle this stuff, which is to make things into projects and tackle each one. Um, so you can maintain at any one point in time, you'll try to be solidly fit in all of them, but focus on one to really gain some improvements and then move on to the next. So that keeps it really interesting and varied for me. And, and I think that it's a couple of things that, that come out of this. Firstly, single sport athletes, I think, can learn from that a lot, and especially as you know, look, if you're an elite runner, your, your vast majority of the training should be running. But I think across e amateur or enthusiast runners could really benefit from some more moldy sport in there. But, but let me be clear, we are not trying to make you into an obsessive triathlete mm -hmm. and all of the well-established and I would say well-earned stereotypes about that. I think there needs to be a reframing of the sport, of its role and how it can actually be really an effective tool to help people thrive in single discipline projects, you talked about North Face earlier on, which is obviously a half marathon, and yet we used multi-sport to get there. And I think that's that's really, really key. So we have one more thing to do. You didn't know that this is going to happen, but uh, <laughs> but oh, as dear. you're an avid listener, you know that we uh, we ask every guest some quick-fire questions. So you're going to have to answer these. And uh, this would I would fail at this because these questions, there are, there are uh, nine questions, and you have to answer them with one word up to one sentence. So it has to be quick fire, from the gut, reactive. Scared. And, uh, I would fail because I would be way too wordy. So here we go. V very quick fire questions. Let's hear what you have to say. It's a, it's a little bit like Mastermind. And if you don't know what Mastermind is, go to <laughs> YouTube, look it up and watch 24 episodes of it. I will have world history from 1400 to 1452, please. There you go. Okay. So I started, so I finished. Here we go. What's the biggest challenge time-starved high performers face? Prioritizing. Prioritizing. Okay, number two. There are eight questions, by the way, I'm wrong. What's your number one performance habit to help daily energy? Consistency. Consistency. Number three, training. Listening to music, focus on the task, or troubleshoot work problems? focus on the task yeah, be present there you go i'm very glad you didn't say troubleshoot work troubleshoot work problems good stuff number four what do you wish you had more of time everyone yes the least our most valuable commodity training we already know the answer to this one fly solo or surrounded with a crowd surrounded with a crowd yeah, for sure like an underworld concert all right, name one to two characteristics of an elite performer that you see across disciplines. Oh, uh, goals and feedback. 
feedback. Okay. Two more questions. Who's been your biggest mentor, performance driven or not? Oh, that's a trick question, Matthew. Clearly you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, a, it's a question. I, I do like most people to say me. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. That's, uh, I think there's a hint of sarcasm in that commentary. But that, Never. And uh, number eight, what's your number one tip or tips for travel? Sleep. Sleep. Everywhere, everywhere and when you can. Perfect. Carmel? Fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us. It's You're been, welcome. Been, I, I, I do not overweight it by saying I think your story is inspirational. I think people can learn from it. And hopefully out of this, we can have two, three, four, five, a hundred people that, that take on the challenge of learning to swim, learning to ride their bike or doing something that they think is impossible and i think it's great so I'd, i really appreciate you being a part of purple patch and being here today <laughs> you're welcome blow bubbles everyone <laughs> take care best of luck bye well thank you so much carmel that was so much rich information i hope that you guys at home are beginning to join the dots here you cannot thrive in work and be the best person you can be or evolve and reach your sporting dreams without a truly integrated approach and i believe that adopting an athletic mindset is a big part of the solution here all of the lessons that we can draw from the approach to elite athletics and then apply to you in your situation is a large part of the answer. It's wonderful and inspirational to hear Carmel's story. Her athletic mindset has helped her become empowered to enrich her own health and performance, enrich her work performance, and ultimately led her to being a great role model for her kids. Great stuff. So, what's coming up next on the Purple Patch Podcast? Well, we've got some goodies for you folks. Recovery, a very buzzy word right now, but what does it really entail and what does it mean to you in a performance-driven life? I shall reveal all. And we're also going to stay on that theme as we're going to welcome Dr. Chris Winter, one of the preeminent sleep experts in the world, and we're going to dive deep into sleep your free and most powerful recovery tool that there is. And we also have a fascinating interview with Ed Baker, recently of Uber, where he was the head of product and growth. And before that, he was at Facebook, where he was head of international growth. But what you might not know about Ed is he's also a pretty special amateur athlete. In fact, I just invited him to Scottsdale to join my pros at our pro camp. So you're going to hear stories about lessons learned in work performance, tales of domination, suffering, and ultimate humiliation for Ed. And then also he's going to draw some parallels and lessons from the pros that he got to hang out with at the camp and some of his mentors and elite performers that he got to be teamed up with in the workplace. So there's lots coming. We also want to get you guys involved. In the coming weeks, you're going to hear about how you can get connected with us. We're busily creating pathways for you to provide us with questions, give us feedback, and tell us what you'd like to hear. That's all coming on the Purple Patch podcast in the coming weeks. Until then, please keep listening, please share with your friends, and of course, positive reviews are always welcome and very helpful. Until next time, take care. Matt Dixon, signing off. To learn more about Purple Patch Custom Triathlon Programming, our upcoming training camps in San Francisco, Kona, and South Carolina, or to learn more about Matt's latest book, Fast Track Triathlete, visit purplepatchfitness.com. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. We'd love it if you would subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks. Thanks.